Good afternoon, church. Thank you. Right. I think the best way to follow this sermon is really to have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 3. And you find it helpful to have an outline, then you can download our e-bulletin on our website, arpc.sg. You know, when I was a, a student, I, I used to play on my school's basketball team. You know, unlike today, uh, we did not have you know, a lot of money from the school to buy jerseys and, and to buy equipment. So we can only print those, you know, cheap cotton jerseys that, look, that looks more like singlets, right? And, uh, and without matching basketball shorts. But then every now and then, uh, we would face school teams that are, they were a lot more resourced than our, my school at least. Right, they wore very nice full jerseys, you know, with, with school sports jackets. Some even carry the same sports bag or, or wear the same shoes. And then we even had teams that had helpers carrying ice boxes, ice boxes with drinks inside it, right? Wow. You know, as the opponents, when, when we see this kind of opponents, we, know, we will immediately be intimidated by them. Now, you would form the impression, oh, there's no way we can beat these teams, right? You're going to lose. And there's some truth in it. Well, these schools often have very good players, and they were deliberately flexed in front of you during their warm-ups, right? Those who can dunk the ball, they will just go and dunk it just so that you will strike fear in you, right? And without even playing a single minute, you already lost the battle, right? Whatever confidence you have in your training and in your teammates, just went out the window because you see this kind of impressive opponents. Well, similarly, the Israelites fear their enemies in the Promised Land simply by the size of their people, the height of their walls. In fact, they were so terrified that they lost courage in entering the land. See, no matter how good the land was and whatever God promised to give them, they were not going in. See, the rebellious and faithless generation died out, but God graciously gave Israel a second chance. The next generation is now given the privilege and the mandate to cross the River Jordan and to enter and take possession of the land which God has promised to give them. So how will it be different this time around? Will the next generation be just as fearful, just as faithless? What will encourage God's people to enter the land? Now this is the big question for us today. What will encourage God's people to enter the land? Now in a significant question for all of us, not only just for Israel, for the answer to that question will also help us to know what will encourage us to receive what God has promised us. What will encourage us as God's people to receive what God has promised us? Well, what will encourage God's people to enter the land? In Deuteronomy 3, firstly, is by the faithfulness of God as God's people steps out in faith and obedience. Now, the most straightforward path to the promised land from Kadesh Barnea, where they were originally, is directly northwards, right? So if you see uh, on the map, now there was a path of the 12 spies 40 years back. 
But God brought the Israelites on a journey to the east of the Jordan. It's like, why, why the detour? Well, in a way, it is like a training ground of faith. It's on this extra journey that they will be encouraged by the faithfulness of God as they step out in faith and obedience. Now, you would have learned from last week that they were to obey God, not to contend with the three nations that are related to them, Moab, Edom, and Ammon. However, there's a change in chapter 2, verse 24. See, Israel was now told to contend in battle with Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and to take possession of his land. But backing this instruction was God's promise to give King Sihon into the hands of the Israelites. See, God promised to help Israel to defeat him and his people. And almost immediately, God fulfilled his promise, right? Because in verse 25, God put the dread and the fear of Israel on the people such that they will hear the report of Israel and tremble and be in anguish. But Moses then sent messengers to King Sihon with words of peace. Now, that was a sort of a common diplomatic practice in those days, right? And the terms, if you read it, is reasonable because the Israelites will just pass through the land. All they need to do is just to, you know, sell them their water, sell them their food. However, King Sihon rejected all these terms. He marched out with his people to engage Israel in battle. Now, behind the scenes, Verse 30 tells us that God has hardened, hardened King Sihon's spirit and made his heart obstinate. Now this is so that Israel will defeat them and take possession of their land. Now the significance of this account is that it is a clear echo of the Exodus. You know, Pharaoh was one who hardened his heart to harm and not let Israel go despite all the requests and all the plagues. Yet it was also God who hardened his heart. So the same thing was happening here with King Sihon, even though it's not on the same scale. But the result is that this new generation would witness God's sovereignty, his God's power in fulfilling his promises and his purposes. So no one and nothing stand in the way of God fulfilling his promise. Then verses 33 to 35 then tells us that Israel defeated King Sihon, defeated his son and all his people. See, not a single city that walls are too high for the Israelites. They captured all the cities and devoted every city and every person to destruction. The Israelites only took the livestock for a plunder. And you see the repeated emphasis on all, A-L-L, all, in these verses speaks of the comprehensiveness of their victory. And it was God who gave all of this into their hands. See, as Israel goes out, steps out in faith and obedience, they will experience and witness the faithfulness of God. God was faithful and capable of keeping His promises. Now, if one event was not enough to encourage and convince the Israelites, just like one booster not enough, right? 
God provided a second one in chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. See, God was going to give King Og of Bashan with all his people and his land into the hands of the Israelites as well. See, just as how they have defeated and possessed the land of King Sihon, they will do the same to King Og. But what was required of the Israelites? They were not to fear, but to act in faith and obedience. So if you read chapter 3, verse 11, you will know that King Og is no ordinary man. Right? His bed, or some will say it's actually his coffin, is nine times four cubits, which is roughly about four times 1.8 meters. Now that is not king size, right? That's giant size bed. Well, it may signify how grand he was, but I think it was trying to say that this guy is so big, right? And being an Amorite king, like King Sihon and the people in the Promised Land, this guy, King Og, was super huge and super tall. Now, if it's like double my height and definitely many times my width. But Israel must not fear these huge, big-sized enemies. And thankfully, they were not crippled by their fear like their fathers were. As they obeyed God in faith, God kept his promise to give their enemies over. They defeated King Og and all his people. They also captured all their 60 cities that were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. All these were devoted to destruction. Now, I guess some of us here may struggle with the idea that you know, the enemies were totally destroyed, leaving no survivors. All the men, the women, the children, they were all killed. But this is the concept of devoted to destruction, otherwise known as harem in Hebrew. But let me just present a few salient points for us to gather, you know, to consider. And these are not by my own thoughts, by many of the scholars that I read. And majority of these points were taken from the later part of the book of Deuteronomy, right? But we will present it here. Well, firstly, the underlying concept is that God is holy and anything that is unholy cannot come into the presence of this holy God. Now, that was the reason why Adam and Eve were driven from God's presence when they sinned. And why the elders of Israel, they were so afraid of being killed when they met God on Mount Sinai. And why the prophet Isaiah would say, Oh, woe is to me when he met God. So since Israel is made to be a holy people belonging to God, and God dwells with his people in the land, there must not be anything or anyone unholy among his people or in the land that they dwell in. See, all these nations that was devoted to destructions, they were certainly unholy as idol worshippers. So they must not dwell in the land. But secondly, it was God's judgment on sin. See, the Amorites were known to be sinners and evildoers. So if you were to read Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 and verse 16, God told Abraham that he was in the promised land. And I told him that when he was in the promised land, that his descendants would be afflicted as slaves in a foreign land, which we now know as, uh, as Egypt, for 400 years 
and they will return back to this land in the fourth generation. And one of the reasons is because the sin of the Amorites residing in the land has not yet complete. Now this implies that the Amorites will sin more and more to the point that they were ripe for judgment. So in other words, the time has come. They have collected enough yellow cards, red cards, and technical files, right? Their sins have reached their peak, so to speak. Of course, we know that Genesis 15 talks about the nations and the people in the promised land in Canaan. However, we also know from chapter 3, verse 8, that these two kings and their people, they were Amorites as well. They would have worshipped the same gods and practiced the same kind of religious rites such as child sacrifices. So they were truly deserving of judgment. Now, the judgment of total destruction is not actually very different from how God destroyed all of Sodom and Gomorrah or, or flooded the whole earth because of sin. See, all the people that were killed were equally deserving of judgment. The only difference is that Israel was now used as a human secondary agent to exact that judgment while God did it directly or through natural forces in the other instances. So it's then important to note that when Israel sinned continually without repentance in the later years, God used agents such as Assyria and Babylon to judge Israel. See, Israel's men, women and children died too in the siege and the war. See, if God did not show mercy or in his purposes spared a remnant, they too will be totally wiped out. And it was clear in Deuteronomy chapter 9 that God did not give Israel this land because they were more righteous. It was because of the wickedness of the nation that God did that. Hence, the destruction of the Amorites was simultaneously a judgment on sin and a warning to Israel. See, Israel would suffer God's punishment and judgment if they behave like the Amorites. But thirdly, and closely connected to the second point, they were not to leave any survivors because of their idolatrous influence. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2 to 4, tells us that if these people remain in the land, there will be intermarriages that will introduce idolatrous practices in the family, and then there will be treaties among them that will require them to acknowledge each other's gods. Now, that will turn their descendants away from following God to serve other gods. See, God would not tolerate any of that. And the outcome will be disastrous. They will be destroyed, just like the Amorites. So they cannot remain in the land. And lastly, corporate identity and responsibility in those days are much stronger than our Western-influenced individuality. You know, my classmate in Bible College, who is now the principal, he used to serve as a missionary in an Asian country, in an Asian community. Uh, and he wrote in the, the, the latest uh, college newsletter about him teaching Joshua 7 to the community. You know, Joshua 7 records Israel's first defeat in the Promised Land. And the reason is because there's just this one man called Achan. 
he kept some items that's used for pagan worship. Right? As a result, Israel was routed by the enemies. Now, my classmate, who was an Australian, he was prepared to hear objections from the people he taught. However, they did not object at all. In fact, they were accepting it and put the blame on Achan, who implicated the rest. Why? Because their culture of collective responsibility would be really much closer to the biblical times. They understand if one does wrong, everybody suffers. But we also teach that, that corporate responsibility too in Singapore. You know, during my days of national service, everyone in the same platoon gets punished when only one or two does the same, does, make some mistakes, right? So I still remember a time when uh, I was on course and uh, uh, some of my classmates, they were, you know, they were too tired, they were too, too lazy to brush their teeth in the morning when we were outfield, right? Now, you wouldn't expect anyone to check on that, were you? Well, wrong. Now, our course commander found that out and he punished us. Well, as for the punishment that came after, I, I, I don't think I want to say it out here, right? I'll keep it to myself, but it's sufficient to say that it is definitely not acceptable today. You can ask me later on. But that, is, but that is the principle, right? That's the principle and the concept, right? One for all and all for one, right? We rejoice together and we suffer together. Now, I hope these points help us to understand this concept of devoted to destruction a bit better. But nonetheless, we also know that it was not a blanket kind of an instruction, right, in a sense. Because when Israel sent spies into Jericho some years later, and, uh, and they were in danger of being caught, a lady, probably a prostitute called Rahab, actually shouted them. Now, she was not an Israelite, but she heard about what God has done for and, and done through the Israelites. So she feared God. So in shouting the spies, she put herself in grave danger. But that really showed that she feared God more than anyone else. And as such, she and probably her whole household were spared when the Israelites attacked. See, there's always mercy and grace when one turns to worship the true and living God. However, let's come back to our, our main point for this section. Why would God bring Israel in order to detour to the east of the Jordan. Well, verses 21 to 22 made it very plain and clear for us. It was for Joshua, Moses' successor, and the next generation to witness all that the Lord their God has done to these two Amorite kings. So they were not to fear because God will do likewise to the same nations in the promised land. You know, when South Korea went to the semifinals in the World Cup in 2002, and there was you know, euphoria, you know, just in the South Korea, they have been good, you know, and, uh, but, and, and in many Asian countries, everybody was just excited, right? Because it gave them hope and belief that they can do it too. And ever since then, and most recently in the last World Cup, we see many Asian countries taking the fight to the stronger countries and upsetting them. Now, what more of God who guarantees victory if His people act in faith and obedience? He will fight 
for the Israelites in the land just as he did in the east of the river Jordan. And as one scholar says, his victories are repeatable. Hence, they are not to fear. This is essentially a full dress rehearsal to boost their faith in God. And we see that in the loaded you know, language and the terms that are used in this section. Right? So you see the gigantic size of their enemies and all those high and fortified city walls were exactly what the previous generation were fearful of. But none of these were a hindrance or obstacle to God. Israel took down every man and scaled every war because God fought for them. And then the previous generation concluded, oh, God must hate us, you know, and, and that's why he's giving us and, and our children over to the Amorites. But now, it was these very children who defeated and destroyed all the Amorites. And then they feared the enemies greatly. But God put fear in the hearts of his enemies. See, when Israel did not fear and acted in, in uh, faith and obedience, they won. And now, they must exercise the same faith and obedience in God and His promises when they cross the Jordan to the Promised Land. See, just as God is sovereign and generous, God's people must also be responsible to act in faith, act in obedience, and receive what God has promised them. See, when both come together, nobody and nothing can stand in their way. So what will encourage God's people to enter the land? Firstly, is by the faithfulness of God, as God's people stepped out in faith and obedience. Secondly, it is by the faithfulness of God's people in unity and obedience. You know, after Israel defeated King Sihon and Og and, and took their land, well, Numbers 32 tells us that the tribes of Reuben and Gad, they saw that the land was good. So they asked Moses, oh, can we have this land instead as an inheritance? Now that request sparked you know, a huge response from Moses because Moses assumed that these Israelites, you know, these tribes, they asked for the land on the east because they did not want to participate in the conquest of the land. So in today's terms, it's like, how partners will pull out of their joint ventures or your project mates will say, no, I'm not going to do anything more at the end of the project, the deadline. Now, can imagine how discouraging it was for the people. You might then lose courage to take the land as the previous generation did. And worse still, if God perceived it as a lack of faith, a lack of obedience, resulting in another round of judgment. So Moses then reminded them of their history of God's anger against Israel's refusal and their 40 years of wandering. Well, thankfully, it was not a case of fear or disobedience. See, the tribes concerned were, were still willing to join the other tribes in their conquest. However, they preferred just to have the land on the east. So they assured Moses, you know, they'll leave their families behind and they would, the, the men would join in the fight across the river. And as history goes, this is no simple commitment at all. The conquest took a good few years, almost about seven years. 
they returned only when their fellow brothers found rest in the land. And that is when all the other tribes have defeated their enemies and have secured the land. See, the land was given to the whole of Israel, so they must take it together. And once again, it showed the collective nature of the community then. But what was more important is their commitment to unity highlights their faith and obedience. They will fight along each other so that they are able to receive what God has promised them. You know, as the Anchor Church of uh, Kochan Presbyterian Secondary School, the chaplaincy team were invited to join their annual course country. So it was uh, very exciting to see the whole entire school, especially after four years of COVID, you know, together at East Coast Park for the run. And I remember talking to a few students, you know, and some of them just openly declared to me, ah, Pastor, I'm not going to run. Uh, it's too tiring, too hot, you know. But then later on, right, I saw them running like crazy, the chonging, right? Why is that so? Well, I think it's because it's the fact that they saw that their fellow schoolmates and classmates were running. They must have encouraged them to run as well. And not only that, I even saw students, you know, encouraging each other along the way when they are trying to pan and say, come on, let's go, let's go. See, that's the power of unity and peer encouragement. You know, likewise at home or school, work, church, you know, you, you are motivated and encouraged when everybody throws their weight behind it. You know, sometimes for us in church, it's the encouragement that we can receive from one another in our DGs, right? Or when, you know, DG leaders or basic leaders or, or church church leaders, they come together, they organize things and they teach and, and they run camps. And there was this excitement and joy, you know, when, when DGs come together to set up booths for Let's Carnival and it's coming again this year. Huh? Or even just going up to church camp on the same coach. So what more for the Israelites? See, the task at hand was challenging to say the least. But everyone was going to be united in faith and obedience. Nobody is shrinking or hiding in a corner. So what will encourage God's people to enter the land? Firstly, it's by the faithfulness of God as God's people steps out in faith and obedience. And secondly, it's by the faithfulness of God's people in unity and obedience. But lastly, it is by the faithfulness of, of God's servants. You know, chapter 3 ends off with a recollection of Moses' plea to God. He pleaded with God to let him go over and see the good land for himself. See, he has witnessed God's power and, and greatness since his time in Egypt. And he hopes to see the completion of this whole journey. However, God denied his plea. Now, if you've been learning with us in the last few weeks, you know that this is not the first time Moses spoke about his denial into the promised land. And he seemed to be putting the blame on the Israelites for his situation. Now, certainly he would remember that it was his own disbelief or his own disobedience at Meribah that caused it. But I don't think he was trying to absolve himself of all blame. Rather, I think that he was trying to tell the Israelites that he, as the leader, was bearing the judgment together with his own generation. 
Now, while God is faithful in keeping his promises to give the land, God is also equally faithful in judging faithlessness and disobedience. So in a way, Moses was warning the next generation and especially his successor, Joshua, with his own situation. You know, I'm the second child of my family. And the good thing about being a second child is that uh, I can learn from the mistakes of my older brother. So whenever he got punished for doing something, I learned not to do the same thing, right? And whenever he gets something, some leeway in certain things, I know I can also push the same buttons, right? And I, I see that repeating in my own children. Right? My younger son is very good now. He really knows what and when to siam us, right? That's to avoid our wrath, right? And request for the same things that we give to our older sister. So likewise, the Israelites are not to repeat the sins of the previous generation. It is a warning to take God and his word seriously because they too can be denied entry into the land if they act in faithlessness and disobedience like the previous generation. Then Moses was faithful as God's servant in general. Right? He has done his part, so to speak. That despite knowing his denial to the land, he still encouraged and rallied the next generation of Israelites. And in the later parts, you will see him actively encouraging and strengthening Joshua to exercise faith in finishing this journey. His work was almost done. It's now up to Joshua to faithfully lead the people. But at the same time, it is not Joshua who will save or win either. See, his role as a faithful leader, a servant of God, is to point people to trust in God who is faithful and capable of keeping his promises. But nonetheless, God in his mercy allowed Moses to see the land. He asked to see the land and God somehow, somewhat granted it, right? Well, perhaps he shouldn't have asked to see but to dwell in it. But in any case, God would allow him to go to the top of Pishgah, which is commonly known as Mount Nebo today. Uh, you can see at the picture. Yeah, I took this when I was there. It was, it was a bit dusty on a day, but if on a clear day, you're supposed to be able to see even like Jericho, right? So I'm sure we all feel a lot for Moses at this point. But let us be encouraged as well that what Moses did eventually stepped into the promised land. Because at Jesus' transfiguration, he appeared at the side of Jesus and in perhaps a more glorious form. Now in conclusion, right, what, what might these accounts and this story mean for us today? But surely we are not called to enter and take possession of the physical and land anymore, right? That's not our, our command. Because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8 tells us, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And by this, the writer of Hebrews was referring to Psalm 95. Now that means that there is a greater rest for us to enter. It is the final rest where we will indeed rest from our labors and our strife. It is a rest where we will be with the Lord without pain, without sin, and without death. 
But the first readers of Hebrews, they were in danger of missing out on this final rest. And why so? Well, it's the same problem as the Israelites in the, in the earlier days. It is the lack of faith and their disobedience. See, Jewish Christians at that time, they faced persecution most probably from the other Jews who were who not uh, Christians. And life was difficult and it seems like they, they lost possessions, you know, some were hurt as part of the persecution. As such, they were very tempted and perhaps have already gone back to their old beliefs and their old practices. They rejected Jesus and they have went back to sin. You see, God's people, whether it's many, many years ago or even now, we have a great tendency to forget and fear. See, the consequences are far greater than for the first generation in the wilderness. Why? Because they will miss out on entering this final rest and they will not get a second chance. See, not many of us here are persecuted like the early Christians. Neither are we in countries like Sudan, where Christians live in real fear of physical harm. Yet, we live in a great fear of missing out on many things in our world. No, they can be genuine fears, and I share many of those fears as you do. We fear missing out on a good job or losing our job, you know, especially now with the, you know, the huge tech layoffs. We fear missing out on a good school, a good cause. We fear missing out on a relationship or our ideal family life. We fear that our children will lose out in our competitive world. We fear missing out on the experiences others have. We fear on not being totally well again. In our fears, we can so easily sideline, sideline God and His ways. We string back and we dare not obey His commandments to love Him rather than anything or anyone else. And we see only the things we fear missing out on, but we forget that we might even miss miss out on entering the final rest. So we too, we too need to remember God's faithfulness. See, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2 tells us that we are to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And we do that by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the journey to the east of the River Jordan is a faith booster for Israel. What more for us who are Jesus? See, by his death and resurrection, he has guaranteed the way into the final rest. He bore the shame in the eyes of men and was not afraid to turn his back on the world that Satan has promised him. But will we, as God's people, then act in faith and obedience? And you know what? 
if, even if we act in faith and obedience, you know, the objects of our fears will not go away. You know, the gigantic enemies and the high walls, they did not disappear for the Israelites. But these things would not stop God from achieving His purposes. See, God's people just need to have faith and courage in Him and the promises and His promises to overcome all this. And truly, if we miss out on some of these things in our world today, can we put on the eyes of faith, just like Moses, to see God's purposes on all that? See, perhaps the missing out on a job or a cause is God's way of helping you to rest firm in His providence and to learn contentment. Perhaps He may be leading you somewhere else to be a blessing to others if you can see it and take it in faith. Perhaps the missing out of your grand plans for your children is to help you reject the unspoken idols and security that you have in your life. And perhaps the missing out on a relationship or a child is for us to draw closer to God and give thanks in all circumstances. And perhaps the missing out of being fully well is to help us to learn humility and make us yearn for heaven. Now, I'm not for a single moment understating or dismissing the disappointment, the pain, and the sorrow. But yet, at the same time, we are called to have faith. And as Tim Chester says, faith sees in all the ordinary things of life the extraordinary work of God. See, faith sees in all the ordinary things of life the extraordinary work of God. And the ancients listed in Hebrews 11, they also have walked this life of faith and not without mistakes and failures. They have. But God is faithful. He will persevere us as we persevere in Him. So let us be encouraged by this great cloud of witnesses, both in the past and perhaps now present among you, to take every step in faith. See, we will not be disappointed because He who promised is faithful. And we have evidence and confidence of that because of the risen Jesus Christ. Let's all rise and pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your word to us today. Indeed, if we hear your voice, let us not harden our hearts. We confess and we admit that we are often overwhelmed by our fears. We forget who you are and what you have done and what you can continue to do. So help us, dear Father, in, in, in our weaknesses and in, in our faithlessness, enable us by your grace and your mercy to put on the eyes of faith as we journey in this world. May we take every step in faith and be assured that you can keep your promises as shown in Christ Jesus. And in the name of our risen Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.